This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey everyone. How's it going? All right, Ryan, I want to kick things off with a listener email. This one came in a few days ago uh, from Lance, and he says, Hey, guys, I just wanted to get your thoughts on something. There's a new kids movie on Paramount Plus called The Tiger's Apprentice. It's a really solid movie with a good cast, including Michelle Yeoh. My question is, in a stretch between Migration and Kung Fu Panda 4, why does something like this not go to theaters? People uh, that love taking their kids to the movies or kids having birthdays don't have anything right now. And this would have been perfect. Just curious what you guys think about that. Um, So we've talked a little bit about the uh, relative emptiness of this uh, corridor of the movie release schedule, right? But do you have any thoughts on this subject at all? Um, Yeah. So it's kind of a, in general, yes. Like there is definitely a, a lack of things in theaters right now. Um, and you would think that like an animated movie like this, like, why not throw it in theaters? We just talked recently about, you know, Paramount has done pretty well by taking things that were originally supposed to go to streaming and putting them in theaters, uh, smile being the biggest example of that. But then recently you had the mean girls musical as well. The only thing I will say, um, about this one is I don't know much about it, but, um, it's only 84 minutes long. Uh, It's got like a 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, I guess it was originally planned for a theatrical release, but it was delayed several times because of the pandemic. And then they just kind of, I guess, decided after the delays and the sort of mixed reviews to go to Paramount Plus directly. Hmm. So my sense here is that it just was that the studio didn't have a lot of confidence in the film. Yeah. Um, whereas like with Mean Girls or with Smile, it was kind of the inverse, right? Where they had a tremendous amount of confidence in those. And so then they opted to go that way with it. Um, because the only thing is that if you're going to release a film in theaters, it is going to cost a lot more to market it, generally speaking. Uh, there's a lot to be said on that where like 
some of these Netflix movies that just get dumped directly to Netflix. Like you never hear about it because they're not really, you know, spending a lot on advertising, but yeah, for a theatrical, you have to invest that money. So that might've just been something that they decided was not worth the investment for whatever reason. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I think smile and the mean girls movie are great examples of Paramount doing this with live action stuff. I wonder if there's, some sort of barrier for kids stuff, like a, a higher barrier to entry where like, I don't know if they can't possibly think, okay, these movies are like more important or like we have a brand reputation to maintain or anything like that. So that's probably not the reason. I think marketing probably has something to do with it, but still I feel like I, I'm scrolling through my AMC app every week, just seeing what's out. And there are a lot of times movies that I've never even heard of that are playing in, you know, my local theater in Northeast Florida, like not even in, uh, uh, a market like LA or Austin or, you know, like a, like a film town or whatever, totally. where, like more obscure stuff would play. So I, I wonder if like, does it make sense for these studios to just put like practically everything that was once greenlit for a streaming only kind of thing into theaters at all? Like, even if there's no advertising whatsoever, just to like see what they get, I guess, I guess that's a, a question. And then also, sort of along those same lines, do you know if there's any sort of, um, if the studios have to pay anyone at all to release a movie or if it's just, I, I've never even looked into that or thought about that at all. Are there any costs I mean, associated with literally the, just putting a movie out? There's the P part of the PNA, right? Which is prints. Now you don't have to make film prints anymore, but there is still a cost associated as I understand it in getting those digital copies as they exist sent out to theater like I, I i this was explained to me once before there is still a cost associated with that p part of the pna so okay. there is a bit of a cost there and then also i believe you have to restructure contracts so like that's the other part right where they that if you recall back in 2021 when all of warner brothers movies were going direct to hbo max there was a huge uproar with a bunch of those stars and directors and I don't remember what the figure was, but Warner Brothers ended up having to pay out tens and millions in bonuses because people were pissed that they weren't going to hit these contract bonuses for box office stuff. Yeah. So I think like in this case, uh, I, I don't well, know. This would be I going care. the other way, right? This would be something that like nobody thought it was going to be theatrical and it would just maybe be like a nice little like tiny bump in there. You, you uh, conceivably, I don't know how this stuff. Yeah. Works, again, I'm, So I'm not sure, but the thing that seems a little off on this one, which seems like a little bit of a bummer, I guess, is that like, in this case, you had a pretty diverse cast, like Henry Golding, Lucy Liu, Sandra Oh, Michelle Yeoh, like that this ends up going to streaming. Whereas like, you know, movies with a lot of white people in them were the ones that went from Paramount plus to, you know, uh, to, uh, to theater. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. The optics of that aren't great, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I'm just looking at it, like it does just look like, you know, mean girls and smile were kind of crowd pleasing. This one appears to sort of not be. So I guess for them, it was just easier to go this way with it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Ryan, you called it. I got to say you, we, we were talking about the Jurassic world movie, losing a director uh, in David Leach. And you were like, what about Gareth Edwards, the director of the creator and Godzilla? He seems like he would be a good fit. And sure enough, Ryan, Gareth Edwards has been announced as the director for this next Jurassic world movie. So what do you think about that? Well, I, when I will say when I said that I wasn't because I did have a lot of people on Twitter like, hey, you called it. And I'm like, it was cool. It was nice. But I will say what I was looking at was like realistic options who were out there who could handle this kind of movie, who's available, 
who is not auteury enough to like get in the way of what, and there aren't that many people who fit that bill. And to me, Gareth Edwards was the best available guy. Um, And, you know, he had just taken a seven year break. I expected he didn't want to take another one. So it just kind of seemed like one of those things. And with the creator not panning out financially, he seemed like a guy that could use kind of a surefire thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it just made sense. But I'm, but I am personally thrilled about this. Like I, Gareth Edwards to me is like four for four, you know, the dude, the dude is, and, and it, particularly if you look at the franchise situations he's been in, he stepped in to make the first American Godzilla movie since the 1998 disaster and it was his first big studio movie, it was potentially a thankless job. And he, you know, look, I know people have mixed feelings about that movie. I love it, but it was, you know, more reviewed well than not. And it started the MonsterVerse. It started an entire franchise that's still going today. Mm -hmm. That job gets him Rogue One, which he has to then make on a truncated timeline. He's again walking into a situation where, Lucasfilm has a story they want to tell, and he has to just execute that story. And yes, I know Tony Gilroy had to come in at the end, but it is ultimately Edward's movie, and it is still hailed as one of the best things that Disney's done with Lucasfilm since buying Lucasfilm. So Mm -hmm. the guy has done this sort of thing almost exactly before and done it very well. It takes a very specific kind of filmmaker to do that. Um, So I, I am very encouraged by this, and I think he's probably the perfect guy to do this. I have to say that I'm much more excited about him being involved with this than I thought I would be. Like once this was made official, I, you know, and and it became like a real thing. I was like, oh, you know what? This actually could be really cool instead of just this sort of hypothetical game that we like to play. And I was thinking about it from the perspective of like Gareth Edwards. I know you said he's not like a, a huge auteur, but he is like a really fascinating filmmaker whose career I think is in, uh, uh, maybe not indicative, but, but is definitely like, feels like a newer generation guy who came up doing VFX and ended up directing movies. He did the the entire visual effects for his first film monsters, uh, like all by himself from my understanding, like basically on his own laptop. And so, uh, graduated into, you know, uh, whatever hundred million plus movie with Godzilla. And then, uh, yeah, has just been like a really interesting guy to watch. He seems like a smart guy, a, a person who knows the business well, knows his way around a film set, knows how to handle stories of this scope and everything. So I think even if this new Jurassic World movie ends up being a complete disaster, I will. I, I am interested in it as a Gareth Edwards movie and what it says, you know, as like a, a new data point on his career timeline and trajectory and things like that. So, um, yeah. And I think there are a couple of things I'd like to point out. One, I can't take credit for this being an original thought, but our own Chris Evangelista pointed out on Twitter when this news broke that like Gareth Edwards is incredibly good at representing scale in his films. And like the look again, say what you will about that 2014 Godzilla movie, a movie I love and I will defend to the death. The, the human POV stuff provides such an amazing sense of scale that you so rarely get in a monster film like that. And then like the shots of the death star in rogue one, like showing us how big that damn thing is. Like he's very, very good at that stuff. And the Mm -hmm. idea of a movie about dinosaurs who are living with humans, what you would like to do is represent scale. I think that's, something he's going to do very well. And the other thing I would say is that I think there are moments in those Jurassic World movies that are very visually impressive. I think particularly the 2015 one and some shots in Dominion. Um, Edwards is a guy who knows how to make his movies visually stand out, even in and amongst franchise stuff. And I think that his visual sense 
coming to this franchise right now is very welcome. So, you know, I think that that's something that shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah. Well, speaking of cool visuals, uh, our next story here involves some concept art for a potential Batman Beyond movie. Did you happen to see this floating around? I know we, uh, we wrote about it, obviously, but I sure as hell did. And and I look, I'm not a I've I've had to say it before. I'm not really a Batman guy. Like, I, I don't much care for Batman, but I like the world he inhabits. But even since from when I was a kid, Batman Beyond was the one sort of exception to that. I really like that world and that concept and that story and and so this is something i've always wanted to see and i think it suits animation and man uh man why i'm so upset warner brothers didn't pull the trigger on this well it sounds like there's still maybe a tiny chance that this could actually happen so what happened was uh yuki demers who was a production designer and producer on uh, spider-man into the spider-verse and spider-man across the spider-verse Uh, published three uh, concept art images. Um, I'll link to our article in the show notes so you can check these out. But they look amazing. They look very like sleek and cool and uh, neon infused. And um, you you can definitely sense a little bit of that Spider-Verse flavor in it, but it also feels like it's it could be like a Blade Runner type of world. You know, it it has its own distinct kind of energy to it. Um, and they just look really amazing. And, and uh, Yuki Demers wrote on Twitter, five months ago, Patrick Harpin walked into Warner Brothers Pictures and DC and pitched a Batman Beyond animated feature. Before we pitched, they warned us, quote, there's absolutely no way we can do a Beyond movie, but they loved our enthusiasm. We pitched the, out, uh, the outline for the entire film and what started as a never turned into a, quote, maybe. Uh, in the time since, we've been pitching our way up the company, hoping to get to James Gunn. But for now, here's a taste of what we've been cooking. Like and share if you want to see this uh, in theaters. So um, it sounds like, you know, uh, this is definitely a case of somebody trying to will a project into existence. Um, but it's happened before. Like things like this have happened before. And uh, I'm thinking Deadpool is the classic yeah. example of that. Deadpool was not going to happen. And to this day, we don't know. It was one of three people. It was either Ryan Reynolds, Rhett Reese. I was one of four people, Ryan Reynolds, Rhett Reese, Paul Wernick, or Tim Miller. One of those four people leaked that footage and that got that movie made. Yeah. Yeah. Now this seems like res- a much more response like, to it was so um, yeah. positive. Right. So I will yeah. never forget that day. Like I, w- I was, and, and just the internet just so collectively being like, do this. Um, and, and this doesn't feel quite as extreme, but it also feels a little more sanctioned, right? Like it doesn't feel like they're, go- he's going super off end here releasing this concept art, but it does feel because the one thing I will say, I remember what, last year when the Flash came out, Kevin Smith had some insider info, and I wrote about this for us at the time. But like, if the Flash had done well, Warner Brothers was going to make a Batman Beyond movie with Michael Keaton. So yeah, live that, action, that, yeah, live action, and that's so. I don't know if that sort of played into the decision to like when they're when when they went in for this meeting, they're like, it's not going to happen. We can't make a Batman Beyond movie. Just, does that have anything to do with it? I have no idea, but like, you know, I don't know. And then James Gunn got his own plans and we'll see. I, I just, it's hard for me to imagine this being a bad idea. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I, I, I would like to see it. Uh, this concept art is kind of perfect. And I really hope this does become a Deadpool situation and what a cool story that would be for them. So we'll see. Yeah, it would be really awesome. And I, I hope it happens. Although, like you said, I mean, James Gunn and Peter Safran clearly have, like well drawn out plans for what they want to do. They with do the DC universe. So uh, well, whether did or not you even fits. see? Not to go too off topic. Did you even see like Joe, Joe Manganiello recently? Like he he tried to meet with James Gunn about the Deathstroke stuff, and James Gunn literally told him like, "Let it go, man." Like, yeah, he's so just like 
Yeah. For those who have not been tracking that, Joe Manganiello played the, this character called Deathstroke. I believe he popped up in the post credit scene of the the theatrical cut of Justice League. And then he had like a slightly bigger role, I believe I'm getting this right, in um, Zack Snyder's version of Justice League, the, 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 the infamous Snyder cut. Um, and there were there was talk at one point about, uh, a, um, what is his name? Uh, I just said it. Gareth Evans, I believe. Name? No, the, um, the character that Joe Manganiello plays. Oh, Deathstroke. Uh, Deathstroke, yeah, like Deathlock. There's all these comic characters. <laughs> yeah, de- de- death, death characters. Yeah. Uh, so Deathstroke, yes, there was a um, Gareth Ed- Evans directed uh, Deathstroke movie that was in the works at one point. He was going to be the villain in Ben Affleck's Batman movie at one point. Yeah. There was conversations about that. So like, uh, just the fact that you know he had definitely had like an investment in that character. And uh, yes, as you just said, he he's been like trying to. Uh, reprise that role in some form or another and had a meeting with James Gunn and James Gunn's like basically like sorry man it's not happening like it just doesn't fit into the plans that we have right now so yeah uh, who knows that that type of thing might happen again with this Batman Beyond project but um anyway I just wanted to highlight it because I thought the images looked really amazing and it would as you said be like a very cool story if this ends up coming true so um there's that and then uh i wanted to ask you before we take a break did you see the Borderlands trailer what did you think about that I did I actually wrote up the story for us um I I have to point out for people that may not know this movie finished filming just shy of three years ago. Um, Very irregular for a movie to, uh, especially a franchise film to sit on a shelf for three years, essentially. Um, So it's not a franchise yet, but it could be, I guess. Well, franchise in the sense that like there it's already existing in a world where there is a franchise around borderlands, even if it's not a film franchise yet. Right. Yeah, so Borderlands like, based on a video game for those who don't. Yeah. Know. And the video games are tremendously popular. Obviously, you're making this with the hopes that it can start a film franchise. Um, so it's hard not to carry that knowledge into the trailer with you. Right. Like doing what we do. You know this, like, you know, everything that goes into something. So when you watch something, you carry that baggage in with you. Mm-hmm. And I will say, like, there's like a Guardians of the Galaxy and Mad Max vibe here. Everything like on paper, like if you were to explain it to someone like, oh, the characters look good, like. It, it's it, it there there there's a the tone seems more or less right like the production design is good but there's just something that feels a little off about it. it like like is it that the humor feels a little forced is it i don't know there's just something about it where you're like all the pieces seem to be there but something just feels off and i don't know what that is but that's my sense of yeah it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so clear that whoever cut this trailer like desperately wants people to think that it's Guardians of the Galaxy, basically like a, a redux kind of version of that. Like, hey, if you like the tone of that first Guardians movie here, we're going to give you that kind of thing again. Um, and I, I don't know if the final script of this movie is going to be worthwhile. We should say that Craig Mazin, uh, who is responsible for... Um, the uh, excellent HBO series Chernobyl and was also one of the co-showrunners of HBO's The Last of Us uh, was on board to write this at one point and basically like walked away from the project and had to like fight to get his name removed from it, which is never a good sign. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of behind the scenes trouble from this. Uh, Eli Roth directed this movie. He ended up having to walk away to make Thanksgiving. And I think Tim Miller, uh, the second Tim Miller mentioned on this podcast, um, who directed Deadpool, uh, came in to direct like reshoots and stuff and sort of like get this movie over the finish line. So yeah, um, I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I feel the same way where I like am bringing all of that information in and kind of like wincing a little bit at it. And also like the introduction, the introduction of uh, the Jack Black character who plays, he, he voices a robot in this. 
kind of is like minions-esque to me. Like it just kind of, I don't know, I cringe a little bit when I see humor like that. But that being said, if I was 14 or something like that, right, uh, this probably would look amazing. I would be very excited about it, especially if I had a relationship to these games. So like, you know, 14 year olds need movies too. Uh, just because it's not for me, maybe doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's a terrible idea or whatever. So, um, yeah, a lot of potential problems on the road to getting this actually out and into the world, but like maybe, uh, and depending on what it's going up against at the box office, I haven't looked at its competition recently. Like comes out early August, uh, which can be fruitful for the right movie. Um, yeah, uh, I can actually. I, can, I could look real quick um, to see. I, I haven't. And August was when the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie came out, if I remember. It right. was. So, it's actually in a very um, similar. Yeah, it, that is exactly when the first uh, Guardians came out. You were correct there, Ben. Um, so let's see. So uh, it comes out against uh, Flint Strong, which I'm guessing has something to do with Flint, Michigan. Comes uh, out a week never after Arrow. Oh, comes out the week before Alien Romulus and Horizon Chapter Two. So it does seemingly have like a a whole week there where it could, you know, um, oh man, August 16th suddenly looks bad for Kevin Costner. Anyway, that's another story entirely. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, we'll see. It, it, it could get lucky. I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a break and then we'll be right back with some more movie news. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, Ryan, uh, Joker 2, there was a report that came out recently, I think this was yesterday, that Joker 2 costs around $200 million to make. Um, The original movie cost around $60 million. Uh, I think, you know, it's probably expected to some degree that sequels will cost more than uh, their predecessors, Um, at least, you know, movie one to movie two. There's typically a, a jump there in cost. Uh, but you were not thrilled about this news. So tell me why you're, you were not, not happy about this. You are correct. It is very frequently the case that like a cost will go up for a sequel, and especially for a movie like Joker, right? Cause it's like what happened with Deadpool where they had to make the first Deadpool for, you know, very little money relative to a superhero movie. So nobody got paid a lot relative to what you get paid for that kind of movie. Movie does very well. You get a sequel understandably everyone then wants to get paid so like joaquin phoenix is apparently getting 20 million dollars for this movie if your first movie makes a billion dollars i'd say you've earned it um it, it, i'm it, todd phillips salary was not uh, uh mentioned but i got to imagine he got a similar amount uh and again fair enough he earned it lady gaga's getting 12 million dollars she's earned it but like that doesn't make a 140 million dollar difference mm-hmm. and so this is just, I have railed against budgets on this podcast before, and I won't stop doing it until like some sensibility comes in. And granted, this was all in motion before things started going the way they're going, but DC has not had an outright superhero movie hit in quite some time. Um, And, and look, you would say it's a billion dollar movie. It's safe. Well, 
Aquaman was a $1.1 billion movie and its sequel made $433 million. You're going to tell me this is definitely safe. And let yeah, us not and, forget- and Captain Marvel too. Right. And let us not forget the Joker 2 is a musical. Like people are, and now they're guaranteed Warner Brothers is going to bury the lead in the marketing on that one. But it, war, musicals are very risky. Wonka made $600 million. Uh, Color Purple shot out of a gate like a cannon and then completely fell apart. And Warner Brothers is supposedly going to lose around $40 million on that movie. So, you know, I don't know. I just think, okay, fine. Todd Phillips wants to take like another risk with making Joker 2 a musical. I think that could be interesting, but you should probably mitigate that risk with the budget. Mm-hmm. I, I always expected this was probably going to be 100, 120, which is still a lot for this sort of thing. Like, you, you know, the first Joker is a grounded, ground level crime movie. There's not a lot of CGI. There's not, I don't understand where $140 million goes uh, other than salary. I don't know. I, I just, this is, I mean, look, and who knows? It could still very well, because you don't need to make a billion dollars, right? You can make. I sort of looked at maybe around six hundred million to break even if they are smart with the marketing. Mm-hmm. That's conceivable, but is that what you want to do? Is break even on a movie like this? No, you want it to make money. That's the so I don't know. I just I was very upset to hear this, and uh, on some level, and, and I will say this too: that whole piece that this bit of information came from is just how about Warner Brothers is throwing around money at certain projects right now, and um. I found myself wagging my finger a lot and uh, I was pretty irritated <laughs> loudly in our Slack yesterday about some of it and I won't get into all of it, but uh, the things that Warner Brothers is choosing to invest in right now and the way they're investing in it versus things that they are not choosing to invest in and the way they're sort of, let's say, divesting some of those investments mm. is very upsetting to me. Um, well, so. yeah, we don't need to have like a full conversation about that, but I don't think we've really talked about that very much on the podcast. So I just want to sort of like set the table for for what could be potential conversations, especially coming up in April, which is when um, basically that when uh, Warner Brothers and Discovery merged, there was, I think, a two year um like a lockdown place on the company basically where like they have to sort of fend for themselves. Right. And then once that two year uh, um, restriction is lifted, which is coming up this April, Warner brothers and, or I guess Warner brothers discovery now will be able to either go up for sale or be in the market for potentially acquiring another company or merging with another company or something like that. And there've been a lot of, there's been a lot of speculation that David Zaslav has been positioning Warner Brothers for a sale, basically, like making all of these decisions, including spending a lot of money on top tier uh, filmmakers that the Tom Cruise deal was mentioned recently, where I think we talked about that on the podcast, where he signed a a production deal with Warner Brothers um, and yeah, throwing money at some of these movies in order to basically make Warner Brothers look good for potential buyers. So like that's the sort of... um, I don't know, like if you want to look through the code of the matrix and see like what could be really going on here, or at least some justification for why these decisions are being made, that is like some speculation about what could be happening here. So um, I don't think we've really talked about that on the, on the show yet. So I just want to like lay that out for people. No, I think Um, we talked about it gently when there was a little bit of rumor about like Paramount, maybe, uh, uh, oh yeah, merging or whatever. Yeah, there was some talk of the of the because Zaslav at least met with the Paramount brass about it. But yeah, I don't know. And I mean, you t- you know, we don't need to bring this up again. But I, but the whole shelving Coyote versus Acme thing for a tax write off when they're spending 
this kind of money on some of this stuff. It's it's genuinely upsetting. Like, and I yeah. was a guy who was not as hard on Zaslav as other people were in the beginning, and I regret that now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, it just it's upsetting to me as a guy who <laughs> likes things and so yeah. whatever. We all live long enough to regret our early uh decisions about David Zaslav and giving him a chance, right? <laughs> I came to that same realization myself like a few months ago. So yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, yeah. you're in good company. Um, okay. So the last story that I wanted to mention here is something called the Disney movie club is coming to an end after 20 years, more than 20 years. Uh, but there's something else going on here. And I wanted you to tell me about this, Ryan, because I'm not super familiar with the Disney movie club. So first of all, just like, tell me what that is and why it's ending and what that means. And then explain what else is going on here. Yeah, so Disney, um, one thing Disney maybe doesn't get enough credit for is their ability to capitalize on the home video market, which is something they did maybe better than anyone else for decades um, by putting movies in the vault, remastering things, the classic VHSs that had like those big plastic cases that kids wanted, like they capitalized very well on the home video market. And so around the time of the DVD boom in the early 2000s, uh, Disney started the Disney Movie Club, which is where you could subscribe to it and uh like when i did it you had to meet this commitment right so like you initially would get like five free movies or something and then you'd have it was sort of like the columbia house stuff back in the day where then like then you'd have to buy like five full five movies at full price before you meet your commitment or something but the nice thing about it is they would get exclusives and then also what would happen most of the time is you'd buy like one at full price for like you know, whatever it was, but then you'd get a a anything else you bought on that order, you'd get for like 50% off. So if you ordered a few things, it would be super worth it. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and then again, like um, there were exclusive releases like Mighty Ducks on Blu-ray or some of these other things throughout the years that you could only get through Disney Movie Club. So it was, it was you know, a way for Disney to capitalize on the home video market, but also a way for, you know, fans like me to get certain things. Um, that was how I bought when I got the Mandalorian steelbooks recently, because if you bought them both at once through Disney movie club, it was cheaper to buy them that way. But anyway, so yeah, it's shutting down. Um, uh, this was first broken by the digital bits and then was quickly confirmed by the Disney movie club socials. I'll just read the quote here. It says after 23 magical years, it's time to say goodbye. After serving over 10 million valued club members, we have made the difficult decision to close the Disney movie club. We'll miss the opportunity to be the part of lives of so many Disney fans, including you, We'll forever grateful to your time chosen to spend with us, uh, but we're not done yet. In the months to come, we'll be piling on perks to celebrate you, our loyal member. Uh, so the idea is they're going to have a bunch of sales and stuff, and they met everyone's commitment status, so you don't have to worry about fulfilling your commitment. Uh, you know, if and uh, yeah, the last day to put in orders is uh, in May, and then they're shutting it down in July. Um, so if you're a member of Disney Movie Club, you got a few months to get in your orders. Uh, that's the first part of it. Uh, would you like me to? Yeah, so that's that's prong. Yeah, 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 that's prong one. And then prong two, I think, has like much more interesting um, uh, potential effects and like consequences for uh, Disney and Fox projects coming out in the home video market in the years to come. So tell me about that. It does. Prong two sort of explains prong one. So what's happening is, is Disney is saying, screw it. Uh, they are letting Sony Pictures Entertainment take over their physical media business. So Disney, my expectation is that Disney's going to get a cut, but they're going, you know what, Sony, you deal with it. Uh, the Digital Bits had a lot of explaining that like things have gotten really complicated with um, Disney's uh, home video stuff because of all the reorganization that's happened in the company. So let's say they want to make like a 4K of a library title. It's got to get approved by like 10 people and it was just getting messy. So 
Disney's now just letting Sony handle it. So Sony will uh, manufacture, distribute, and market all of Disney's DVD and Blu-ray releases going forward. So it's fully in their control. Now what is unclear is what level of control Sony has over that. And optimism in place, Sony will want to maximize the value of this deal because they are seeing the value in Disney's library and physical media. So maybe that means we get more 4K library releases of some Fox titles and things like that if they are allowed to do such things. Uh, if not, it could just be a situation where Disney is going, you know, here are the titles we're letting you release, you take it from there. We don't mm-hmm. really know what that's going to be yet. But at the very least, it does mean that Sony is not, or that Disney is not going to get out of the physical media business entirely. That they're just passing that buck to someone else who clearly sees the value in it or they wouldn't have made this deal. So that's that to me alone is encouraging to what degree it's encouraging. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And that's good news. The the Sony thing I think is good news from, I'm not like a huge physical media collector. I have like a, you know, an okay number of Blu-rays or whatever. And, and like, I've just recently started buying some 4k discs here and there, but I, I know there are people who like devote, you know, entire walls of their house to like collecting their, uh, to displaying their collections and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right? much, so like, much to my girlfriend's chagrin, I'm one of those people. <laughs> so I think people like you will, will appreciate the fact that Sony is the company that is handling this stuff now, because from what I understand, the way that Sony um, handles their business on that end is like top tier, like top of the market. They're like some of the best in the industry, if not the best in the industry at manufacturing and, um, you know, like actually doing the work of putting these discs together. So like quality wise, I think this is going to be great news for people who care about this stuff. Oh, totally. Um, and, and the other thing too, is you got the other thing I point out in the article I wrote about it is that like Sony does not have a streaming service, right? Like they're one of the few studios in Hollywood that doesn't. So they're looking for value elsewhere. You're looking at the library Disney controls of, you know, look, and I've talked about this a lot when you talk about physical media, yes, the market's declining, but money's money. Profit is profit. Mm-hmm. You know, you're selling, you know, these 4k discs people want, I guarantee you that Prey 4K release made money. Like, there's no way. That thing was sold out. Like, people were super excited about it. So the people that want it, take the money. You know, why not? And I think Sony's going to look at that library and be like, yeah, we can we can capitalize on this since Disney won't. And that's my real hope there. Um, you know, and look, we've all seen the folly of streaming. Uh, these titles are not guaranteed to be around forever. And I, people that did not care about physical media last year are now starting to sort of talk to me a little bit and be like, yeah, you know what? I might grab this because I have because I want to be able to watch this. And I think even your average consumer is starting to realize that. So, yeah, I think this is this. I think it sucks. Disney Movie Club shutting down. I would have much like the digital bit suggest that I would have liked to have maybe seen Sony just take over that business. I guess that's not what Disney wanted to do, whatever. But, you know, at least it's not Disney getting out of this business entirely. And who knows? Maybe this means we get Barbarian on Blu-ray now. Maybe this means we get the Empty Man on Blu-ray. I choose to be optimistic until I have reason to otherwise not be. Yeah, I would love for Sony to have control over like picking from the library and saying, hey, these are the ones that we think have the most potential in this market or whatever. Um, Of course, Disney would have to, they would have to give them some guidelines, right? They, They would be like, they would say, you know, you could never re-release the the theatrical uh, editions of the Star Wars movies, for example. Like, I, I think sure. Disney would uh, would not allow, or like a song Song of the South or something, right? Like that Disney has been like sitting on for decades at this point. So like they wouldn't let them just dig around in there and do whatever they wanted. But I I, I hope the the um, 
uh, relationship, the, the sort of uh, arrangement is much more in line with like, okay, here are the five things that you can't touch instead of here are the five things that you can touch right now. So um, we'll have to see if, if more details come out about the arrangement and, and how all of that shakes out. But uh, yeah, I, I think I'm kind of with you, Ryan. I feel like this is like maybe a good thing. Like I understand the Disney Movie Club had its value, um, but this Sony deal, like do you see any downsides to that at all? No, I'm choosing to believe it's going to be positive in the aggregate, right? Like where it's like, okay, in the overall end of this. And again, I think that like, Sony probably doesn't do this unless there's like an opportunity there, right? Where like you could look at the sort of underutilized library that Disney's sitting on and they're looking at like, yeah, there's money to be made here, you know? Mm -hmm. And so my guess is that maybe there was nothing super specific ironed out, but like the people at Sony are going to be like, okay, we'll do this for a little bit, demonstrate we can handle it. And then maybe we go to Disney, show them some numbers and be like, hey, this is doing well. What if we put Tombstone out on 4K? Here's what that could make. And like, and then Disney's like, well, all right, if you're going to do it, go ahead. You know, and then like, yeah. so I think that like, if it's not on Disney to do it personally, and you're just looking at spreadsheets and numbers and someone else being like, hey, if we do this, we can make money. They're more likely to say yes. So I, again, for now, I'm choosing to believe that's what's going to happen. Okay, well, uh, you know, it's rare, it, or it feels rare to me anyway, Ryan, that like we can end the podcast on like a somewhat positive note. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm happy to take that opportunity whenever it arises. And this appears to be one of those rare times that we can do it. So I'll, I'll definitely take it. Um, okay, I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on the show at SlashFilm.com. I will link to a bunch of things in the show notes you can click on and find more information there. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That does help us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 